0: Hi, friends, it's Diane here at the Sailing Legends podcast, where we're preserving the legacy of sailors and sailing from all over the world. The mission of this podcast is to have people tell their stories so that their legacy and the lessons and the amazing connections we build on the water sailing are preserved forever. I have a great guest for us today who I absolutely adore. His name is Larry Willis, and I met him years ago at Davis Island Yacht Club in Tampa, and I've sailed with him a few times, and every time I'm on the boat with him, I'm always impressed by his demeanor and his way and how he thinks. So when he said he'd be on the podcast, I was so excited to have a person of skill and competence and humor all wrapped up in the same amazing man, show up on the show. So Larry, welcome and thank you for coming to the show. Diane, thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure to be here. Oh, this is going to be fun. And I'd love to start this whole storytelling off with how did you learn how to sail and when was it? And and give us a little color about your first experiences.
1: Sure, be glad to. Uh, and, and you'll forgive my old memory because uh, a, lot of, a lot of things get uh, very hazy with age. So uh, I was in, at going to University of South Florida here in Tampa, and I did not really have any uh, sailing experience at all uh, going to college. Uh, I had a little bit of boating experience. My, my dad used to build wooden uh, runabouts in the 1950s. And so we had a little a little runabout boat, little wooden runabout boat. They were probably 16 feet or something. And I've got a few pictures of me you know, on the boat. We go out and run around the lake and stuff. But unfortunately my dad mostly built the boats. He didn't really enjoy them that much and take them out because he was always working building the boats. And uh, and he got out of that business because fiberglass came in and he hated working with fiberglass. And uh, so he, he got onto other things. I went uh, uh, off to college, and uh, after a couple of years at college, I basically kind of got bored of uh, the uh, uh, every night's a beer party at somebody's uh, house or, or frat or whatever, and uh, decided I, th- there's got to be more to um, uh, college than doing this. And so the same week, somewhere around 74, I guess, in that neighborhood, I can't tell you for sure, but you know, the, the same week at college, I decided, okay, I got to do, do something different so I walked into the sailing club, the USF Sailing Club, uh, just their weekly or monthly meeting, and also at the same week walked into the USF Rock Climbing Club. Uh, so on the sailing side, I, I I came into the sailing club and I said I don't know nothing about sailing, have no idea, but would love you know some adventure and I uh, don't have any money, but uh, you know would 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 just love to uh to, to learn and see what this is all about. And because uh, I had always enjoyed being on the water and around the water, that's something that I've always had a great connection to. So I started talking to people while I was there and they were very welcoming and warming and so forth. And, uh, I, and I met up with this uh, tall guy. His name was Bill White. Uh, I came to find out later on uh, that his nickname was Wild Man, and he lived up to it over the years. i uh, got plenty of stories I can tell about uh, Bill's wild Man history. Uh, but he was uh, probably a 6'2", big, lanky guy, a little bit older, probably in his mid-20s or so. I'm not even sure he was a college student at that point. Probably wasn't now that I think back on it. Uh, but he was there and he was, uh, you know, we started talking. And he said, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm looking for somebody to help me out. I sail, you know, I, I, I do stuff on the sailboat for the owner and I just, I always need somebody to help me out. And so I said, well, I, I know nothing at all, but, you know, I, I'm a quick learner and I can take directions and, you know, you just kind of tell me what to do and I'll I'll figure it out and I'll help you out. He said, great. Okay, well, come on down to, at that time, the owner kept the boat at Marjorie Park uh, down in Tampa, downtown Tampa. He said, just come on down there. And I don't remember what day it was, a Saturday or whatever it was. Come on down, you know, at 10 o'clock, be there or nine o'clock, whatever time it was. So I walked down to the marina. He said, just, just you know, look for the, the dockmaster's office and we're the boat that's, you know, right right behind the dockmaster. So I, I drive down and walk down there and I walk up and there is this 55 foot catch rig. Of course, I didn't know it was a catch rig at that time. It just had two masts and a uh, big old 55 uh, foot wide, uh, 19, probably built in the 60s, wooden, beautiful wooden uh, hulled uh, boat named Figaro four. And, uh, it was just a gorgeous boat, but it was like absolutely daunting for me. The idea that, Oh my God, I don't know anything about sailing and I'm supposed to be getting on this boat helping, you know, out. And, uh, so anyway, Bill, Bill was there and he you know, called me over and so forth and threw me right into it. Uh, he, as it turns out, he worked for deck, which is the front part of the boat. And, uh, on a boat this big, it's a job, uh, sales are huge, uh, force, uh the forces that the sales, uh, create are huge. So Bill just started coaching me through it. So my first sailing experience was a 55 foot, uh, big old catch rig sailboat and, uh, literally just hit the ground running, uh, you know, trying to figure out what stuff was called and, uh, you know, try not to make too many mistakes and help out as much as I could.
0: Wow, that's amazing. So, did you keep sailing with them on that boat?
1: I did. We uh, we sailed for quite a few years. The boat was owned by a gentleman named George Thompson, as I recall. He was a real estate developer somewhere good in the South Tampa area, and uh, he owned the boat. He actually had a second boat uh, that was a similar size, uh, but he raced Figaro 4 mostly. And I sailed with them probably for three, four years. Uh, we actually did the 1977, I think it is, Mexico race, uh, which was from St. Petersburg to Isla Mujeres, Mexico, and it's about 500 some odd miles. So it's a you know it's a you know, race. It usually takes three and a half, four days, five days, sometimes depending on the wind. And uh, as I recall, that year was pretty good, pretty good weather, and we 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 had a pretty quick, quick trip. I think we ended up take, er, taking first place that year. As I remember. I, I know we were the first boat to finish, and I think I think we ended up first place overall. And uh, and that was when Isla Mujeres was just a sleepy little island town on the coast, the Yucatan coast of Mexico. And so there wasn't a whole lot there, and the the race was a big deal for the folks there. So that was you know that was a a, a wonderful experience for me. Uh, because now that kind of opened up the opportunity for me to use sailing. Uh, I'm here, I'm I'm this broke, I was still in college, or I just just maybe had graduated at that point. Uh, And uh, uh, I'm just this broke, you know, college kid, or just graduated college. And uh, it it was a way for me to, uh, you know, kind of go visit this exotic place uh, uh, and uh, do it at virtually no cost, other than a little bit of of out-of-pocket expense because uh, I could sail the boat over, have a great adventure. I could be over there. The owner would pay for everything. We could stay on the boat. We had hammocks up on the foredeck, strong, strung uh, while we were at Eastlma Harris, and we'd sleep in the hammocks. And then I'd do the boat delivery back, and uh, uh, it didn't really cost me a whole lot. It was a great adventure for, for a young uh, young snapper, a whippersnapper, as I was at that time. So we had a good time with Vickero 4 for quite a few years. And then I think the owner ended up selling it or moving elsewhere, and I transitioned to some other boats at that point.
0: Wow. That's amazing. So you learn how to sail on this big daunting boat that you didn't even know how to sail. And then you're ocean racing a few years later. That's, that's really cool. In fact, I did. Exactly
1: right. I I went (laughs) zero to 60, uh, real fast. And it was, it was just sheer dumb luck, uh, that I, you know, I fell into that situation. They were wonderful. The owners were wonderful and all the crew were wonderful. And there were some really talented people that, uh, I was able to sail with and, and learn. And, uh, so it was a great, it was a great, you know, for me as a, uh, at that point, I would have been in my, you know, probably uh, 23 or something for a 23 year old, a 24 year old. It was just, you know, just this wonderful experience. Uh, and it, uh, it gave me a great appreciation for the sport and the tech technical aspects to it. The, you know, the, uh, the, the, the aspects to it in terms of being out there in the middle of the ocean with, uh, uh, the Milky way above your head and not a light anywhere around you, and, you know, getting into the situation where you realize, uh, you know, how small you are in the scheme of things and how small your boat, this big old massive boat that I thought was, a, uh, uh, you know, unbelievable size. When I first saw it, suddenly you're out there in the middle of the Gulf of Mexico, you know, 200, 300 miles from anywhere. And, uh, you realize how, you know, how insignificant you are in the scheme of things. So, it, uh, it was a great experience. It, it certainly opened the door for me for uh, a lot of things in my life uh, in terms of sailing and, and other experiences.
0: Oh, that's cool. You know, I I raced the Isla Harris race in 1976 on a 30-foot boat with our family, and I've already interviewed somebody else on this podcast who also did that race. They uh, had one of those years where there was no wind, really, so I don't think too many boats finished, and so that's really amazing that we're having the same kind of similar experience, just a couple years different from each other, and we met each other so many years later. I just love how it's like we're all so close, but yet so far away, but close at the same time. Exactly. And and
1: I did that race two years. And I can't actually remember the second year. I know the one year was 77. But I don't remember the second year. It might have been 79 or something in that neighborhood. But um, yeah, and of course, if you did it on a 35 foot boat that I mean, I had a I had an ocean liner compared to yours. Uh, you know, I was on 55 feet, and a lot of comfort. We even had a cook and everything that was came along with us. So Uh, with 35 feet, you guys, particularly if you had very light air, that must have been a daunting uh, voyage.
0: Yeah, we were, it was a PT-30, and so it was an outboard rudder IOR boat, and there were one of the years, we went several years, and one of the years was light air, and another year we went, it was very windy, and we're surfing this thing up and down these huge waves in the Gulf, and I'm thinking, this is crazy, but it's really fun, but it's really crazy, and I was in college at the time, and and, uh, it, it was just that, it was just amazing. It gave me so many life experiences that that I always have with me.
1: Yeah, that's a that, when you get some weather out there, uh, way in the ocean, uh, you really realize real quick, particularly when you're that far out, how you know how isolated you are and how much you have to be prepared. Of course, when you're, you know, you you were probably like me in college. You you know at that time you didn't even have a real appreciation probably for the for the significance of the potential downside. <laughs> No. <laughs> that was that was around you. You know, you just kind of assumed everything was going to be great and it was all going to be fine. And then, of course, the older you get, the more you realize, you know, yeah, these things happen, and suddenly you're, um, you know, you're in a situation you're not anticipating.
0: <laughs> yep, that's the truth. Everything was wonderful then. It still is wonderful, but now I have a little bit more realistic viewpoint. So was on your trip to Mexico, was there any when you look back at it, was there any event or situation or maybe a relationship you had with somebody on the boat that you would look at today and say, you know, that really helped shape my world?
1: I I think it was a, a, a and I don't know that my memory would let me be real specific, uh, uh uh bill i remember bill uh white the wild man as we called him bill wildman bill Wildman white or bill white uh was was on the boat and uh and and he was he was one of these people that just lived life to its fullest and sometimes it was to its excess uh but uh he he really just went for it all and uh he he was fearless in terms of, uh, the way he approached things. And, uh, you know, it probably would be his downside sooner or later or or his downfall sooner or later. I have not stayed in touch with him after, uh, you know, a number of years of sailing with him early on, we kind of parted, parted ways and I have not talked to him ever since then, but I'm sure at some point it came back to, to, to catch up with him, uh, as odds always do. Uh, and then there was a gentleman named Pat strong, uh, who was, you, you may, you may have, cross tracks with him at some point in your travels, Diane, because he, he was an excellent navigator and, uh, he was just somebody who, uh, had, had a, just a ton of sailing experience at that time, uh, all kinds of international races and races. And he came on, uh, to as navigator and uh, I actually sailed with him in some subsequent races. And, uh, he, he would just always impress me with the amount of, uh, Uh, preparation and diligence that uh, he took. And I got to know him pretty well uh, at the time and and always, you know, kind of picked his brain about things. Uh, Of course, you got to remember, this is back pre-GPS and electronics. So everything was celestial navigation and uh, uh, keeping track of things uh, on on a manual chart. You did not have any kind of GPS or satellite connections or anything like that. And so uh, he was just great in the amount of preparation and uh, uh, technical detailing he could give uh, to, uh, to, to trying to route you around the strategic planning and tactical decisions and so forth from an aviation standpoint. Um, and then the other person that, uh, that impressed me was uh, George Thompson, the owner, uh, just a, a wonderful gentleman. Of course, I was a young kid at that point and, and he was an older man. But he was just so giving and um, uh, just always impressed me about the uh, amount of care that he took about everybody that sailed with him and everybody he came in contact with. You know, we'd be down in Mexico, in Isla Mejarris, and of course, this is, he, he was a relatively wealthy man in the real estate business. And uh, uh, we'd be down in Isla Mejarris, and I always saw these uh, uh, examples of where he would go out of his way to make sure he helped somebody. Uh, we'd be in a restaurant or something, uh, you know, a crew would be together uh, having a meal in a little, just a little hole in the wall restaurant in Eastland-the-Harris downtown. And afterwards, I'd see him go over and talk to the owner and uh, almost always left, you know, just a, a, a massive tip relative to whatever the bill was. And, um, you know, he was just a very kind gentleman. Uh, one thing about the Eastland-the-Harris race, as you may recall, is they, one of the traditions is they always do this around the island race. And uh, they invite all the kids uh, uh, from the island to come clamber onto the boats, uh, sometimes with their parents as well as chaperones. And uh, so he was always uh, just open arms about taking as many as possible. And so we'd have, you know, 40 kids, of course, a 55-foot boat. We'd have 40 kids on this boat. And uh, of course, back then, nobody really thought about Coast Guard regulations and like (laughs) <laughs> life preservers and certainly not in Isla Mexico. And so, you know, you just constantly be concerned about oh my god this kid's going to get, you know, he's going to fall overboard but everybody was wonderful and of course we we had, you know, we tried to get a couple of people were interpreters so we could get everybody, you know, moving in the right direction at the right time and nobody was going to get hurt and so forth. But it worked out wonderful and George was always great in that respect. So, uh they they, they were good times for me as a as a young kid. It was a wonderful time.
0: Oh, that's awesome! And so, obviously, you continued sailing from that time of your life. I could reminisce on that around the island race for like ever because I, I, you're bringing back so many amazing memories for me, Larry. Um, but you kept sailing, obviously, because you're still sailing today. And so, tell us a little bit about how did things begin to segue further? Like, okay, the the racing bug bit you right out of the gate. So, <laughs> yep, I, I, it was, and 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 I,
1: it, it, I graduated college in '77. And uh, I did uh, a number of races in, the, in my last couple of years of college uh, where I was uh, doing some extended racing. Uh, if you remember the old Southern Ocean Racing Circuit, SORC, as they called it, which was at, in, the, in, the, in the mid to late 70s, what it was at its heyday. And that's when you had just boats coming from around the world uh, over here to the west coast of Florida, St. Pete Yacht Club, uh, based in St. Petersburg. And they would, uh, that'd be the start of the first race. And then they'd end up going down around the uh, uh, Keys uh, and up to Fort Lauderdale on the east coast of Florida. And then the subsequent races would be from Fort Lauderdale, uh, West Palm area, across the uh, uh, Gulf Stream over to uh, various points that were on the Bahamas side. And then they'd come back. And then the last two races were uh, the race around the north end of the Bahamas, all the way around to Nassau, uh, from Port Louis—I La- believe it started in Port Lauderdale or right in that area—and then the last race was a small race off of uh, Nassau. So it was a, a series of six races, five five significant races, and then one kind of wrapping it up race off of Nassau, Bahamas, and um, the. Uh, The opportunity for me to sail in that for a couple of times, at at that point, I was on, I was sailing on a boat called Cognizant, which was another 50, a 50 footer aluminum hull boat based out of St. Petersburg, a guy named Wells Coggeshall owned it, and uh, he campaigned it in the, um, uh, I want to say the 76 and 77 SORC, we did a couple of years. And uh, it was it was just a mix of we had some real significant weather in 77, if I remember correctly. And they've got just these amazing pictures of uh, uh, aerial pictures of boats uh, in the race that went from Fort Lauderdale over to Nassau. The fifth race uh, had just a huge front. This was always done in February of the year and it, it went over about a six week period. And so they had this huge weather front came through and just unbelievable conditions. And they've got aerial photos of just these unbelievable uh, uh, situations where these boats are heeled over, uh, you know, almost at 45 degrees uh, 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 where it seems like they're almost tipped over into the water and they're at the crest of a wave that's breaking. And you see the crew members on this huddled on the side of the boat and everybody's hanging on for dear life as this wave breaks over the, the side of the boat, and it was just crazy uh, conditions at that point in time, Uh, but I did, I did a lot of that, and I juggled college, and then I eventually graduated, and uh, for quite a few years up until the early 80s, and then I stepped away from sailing for 10 years. Uh, I I got into business, started having kids, and uh, uh, just kind of stopped sailing for about a decade, and um, really missed it, and uh, it 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 grew on me over the years as my kids got a little bit older where they weren't infants anymore. I eventually worked my way back to, uh, you know, started sailing again over at Davis Island Yacht Club and just kind of, you know, catching up with people and saying, hey, I'm back and uh, uh, hooking up with folks to get, you know, to get another ride and keep going. So, and then I've been sailing pretty continuously since I got back into it. That would have been probably about early 90s uh, I've been, uh, you know, I've been, I've been sailing pretty continuously.
0: So how did it feel for you coming back into sailing after a decade out of it when you were so immersed in it and the really high end thing? In fact, Wells Cogashell and Cognizant's a boat very well known to me. I've raced against it and I know Wells well. So that's kind of funny. You're mentioning boats that I know. Yeah, I well.
1: Red Hall, Cherry Red Hall. You couldn't yeah, hardly... she,
0: was, she was a beautiful boat. So how did it, it, it feel?
1: Was, it was it, it was it was weird um, coming back because obviously I was very rusty at that point and a lot of the people I knew uh, had moved on or done other things. So I was a little bit you know I was kind of searching for faces that I knew uh, you know as I, I I remember I believe as I recall what it was is I you know I knew Davis Island was doing these uh, Thursday night races which they still do. And, uh, and, and, you know, so I knew they, they, they did that. And I finally just said, OK, I got to get back into it. So I, I think I just kind of wandered down to the club and started looking around and uh, eventually saw a couple of people that, you know, I were familiar faces and uh, kind of just started, uh, you know, networking with people to say, hey, I'd love to go go sailing. I don't remember the first boat I sailed on when I came back. But, uh, you know, the club is so welcoming, as you well know, it's a, it's a great opportunity for people to even somebody who's never sailed before to come down and, and enjoy, uh, you know, getting exposed to it and the camaraderie and the, uh, you know, the, all the fun things associated with the sport. And, uh, so I just started back and it was wonderful. I mean, I, I immediately, uh, realized uh, how much I missed, uh, doing it and, uh, how much it meant to me to, uh, to get back on the water and to get into a situation where I was, uh, you know, enjoying, uh, sailing's a very, uh, uh, has a lot of emotional aspects to it, uh, where you feel so good being on the water and around the water, and of course, you get wildlife and dolphins and sunsets and horrible weather and great weather and everything in between, and wind and no wind and what have you, but you also, when you're racing, it's, uh, as you well know, Diane, it's it's a very technical sport, and it's a thinking man sport. It's not something where you can just go out and you know push a button and everything happens uh, automatically i mean it takes a lot of thought a lot of planning a lot of technical decisions a lot of tactical stuff strategic decisions depending on the length of the race and uh so you just have to be in a position where you uh uh you know you go along and you and you uh you, you you're constantly adjusting to weather and waves and everything else
0: yeah i look at it and and see it a lot i think <coughs> racing like when you're saying how technical it is I think of it as like a moving chess match (coughs) because there's so much technical thinking much more thinking than people realize
1: very much so it 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 probably is a three-dimensional chess uh, on a moving rocking board (laughs) exactly yeah very very much so it's a very technical sport when you get into it people don't realize it I get people that, uh, we, we always embrace taking people out as much as we can. And I get people that come out and they, uh, they tell me after they get done, they go Oh my gosh, even if we've just had an easy sail or an easy race that it wasn't anything really challenging, you know, they'll tell me, Oh my gosh, I never realized there was so much to it, you know? And of course sailing doesn't have to be, you don't have to race. You can always just go out and cruise and, you know, go where the wind takes you and, you know, not, not worry about it too much and just have a nice sunset cruise and, uh, don't even think about it, but uh, it can be very technical and very challenging if you choose to make it that way.
0: Exactly. So do you enjoy cruising?
1: I do. As I've gotten older, um, I guess I didn't appreciate it when I was younger. And as I've gotten, gotten older, I think I've uh, become more and more uh, appreciative of the uh, slower pace uh, and the uh, uh, the, the benefits of kind of just enjoying the uh, the the travel without necessarily uh, we still race sometimes in a cruising uh, format uh, so you know it's a cruising boat but it's uh, uh you know we're still racing it uh, so you get a blend of a little of both but I do enjoy the cruising my wife and I uh, just uh, Carrie uh, just recently uh, purchased uh, last year late last year a uh, uh, Morgan forty five uh, Catalina uh, built boat and uh, 1992, it's an older boat. It was in rough shape in Texas. But we, so we had to go out to Texas to get it and uh, spend a couple of weeks living out there after we bought it, uh, fixing it up and getting it so it was seaworthy and we could make the trip back uh, here to uh, uh, to Tampa. And uh, it was quite an adventure bringing it back. And, uh, and it was a, a delivery, but a cruise at the same time. And uh, we had a great time and that gave me really a good, uh, a taste of what it would be like, uh, our plans for this boat in the future are to, are to do more extended cruising and uh, take it um, off into the Bahamas or Mexico or uh, Northern Caribbean and then, you know, as far afield as uh, life and time and uh, our uh, ambitions take us.
0: Oh that's amazing. Nine. I remember hearing about this trip coming back, bringing delivering your boat home after you bought it in Texas. Is there a part of the trip you'd like to share like any kind of adventure that you had or or what, I I remember something about that you had to hold up and wait because a tropical storm was going through somewhere or something. I'm not exactly sure, but give everybody a little idea of like the adventure you had because it was an adventure from everything I remember.
1: It, it, it was it turned out to be far more than we anticipated um, you know this was a boat we bought that was in, in 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 okay shape in a very basic way, but it just needed a lot of work so we we started off in Piedmont, Texas, which is just south of Houston and um, as I mentioned earlier we met, you know we spent two weeks Carrie and I lived on the boat uh, we spent two weeks doing nothing but just getting it, it it cleaned up and get rid of the mold and the mildew and the leaking and water everywhere and all kinds of stuff that had been neglected for years and making sure that the engine was running okay and, you know, oil changes and belts and all the other things that go along with it. So that part of it was an adventure in and of itself, outfitting it and bringing it up to speed and putting a new chart plotter on it that Carrie insisted that we needed. I wasn't sure about, but we ultimately thank God that we had it and uh, 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 thanked Carrie many times for her foresight. To uh, add this uh, wonderful chart plotter on the boat, uh, so we left Kema, went down to Galveston, spent the night there. Weather was terrible, so we elected to do the intercoastal waterway coming across. and of course, this is a you know this is a, a probably about 900 miles, if I remember correctly, I'm trying to refresh my memory about how long it was from Kema, uh, from, uh, Texas, all the way to Tampa, Florida. so it's a long haul. And so we did the first couple of days along the intercoastal, which is a very industrial. Uh, character there in the sense of the boats that are on it. Uh, the intercoastal here in the Tampa area is very recreational, very little commercial traffic. Over there, there's almost no recreational traffic. Uh, it's all uh, barges, uh, tugs pushing barges of chemicals and various things that, that are transiting back and forth between Louisiana and Texas. And so we, uh, we traveled the intercoastal for the first couple of days and worked our way out towards the Gulf as the weather cleared. Uh, stopped at a little town called Cameron, which is uh, at the mouth of uh, the of one of the rivers there, uh, and uh, right on the uh, Gulf of Mexico. And it's a little shrimp village, uh, uh, oil supply thing, just a little uh, podunk, little marina, uh, industri- semi-industrial port there. Uh, shrimp boats, a lot of shrimp boats, for example, and some oil service stuff. And so we just pulled up to a rickety old dock there, and we needed fuel, so we we took some jerry cans and got off the boat and walked up to the closest convenience store because they had no marinas for recreational boating at all. They didn't, there was nothing there for that kind of uh, service. So uh, we had to lug the jerry cans up to the to the uh, convenience store, get some diesel fuel, lug them back to the boat, uh, work fill up the tanks, go back to the uh, to the to the, to the uh, convenience store, get the jerry cans. And then afterwards, uh, Carrie and the other two crew that were with us, another couple from the club that joined us for the first part of the trip, uh, they went up to a little shrimp, uh, little restaurant that was right on the way to the convenience store. And they, uh, you know, just enjoyed this wonderful uh, 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 shrimp and fresh seafood, uh, you know, literally just come off the boats. So then they're talking to the local captains and getting all the scoop about what we should be uh, aware of and things we should do and watch out for and what have you. So they came back to the boat and we all, you know, got a nice sleep and we took off the next morning. Well, what we, the, the weather was good. So we decided, okay, rather than the intercoastal at that point turns into a lot of locks and bridges and uh, and we'd already had a taste of one of those at the tail end of the intercoastal part of the trip. And it was just a major production. I mean, it took, it took so much time to get through there and you've got all these commercial barges and things that you're dodging so we said hey the weather's okay let's just go we'll follow the coastline and we'll get over towards the mouth of the mississippi over in louisa louisiana side and then eventually our plan was to work our way up to pensacola uh, and uh, panama city area and uh leave the boat at panama city so we're working uh, we, we we got the word from the captains there in cameron that uh, we gotta be real careful for this oil stuff because they've been They've been exploring since the thirties out there in the waters off of Louisiana coast. And you got to be careful for all this oil stuff that's out there. Of course, we had no idea what to expect other than these vague descriptions that we got and, uh, and warnings and everything that we got from these folks. So we take off and it's four of us, uh, Carrie and I, and, uh, the other couple. And, uh, we, we, we head off in the morning and we get out in the Gulf of Mexico and the day's not too uh, dramatic, uh, we see a few, you know, oil rigs and things off in the distance and what have you. And, and uh, you know, we we, we ended up uh, uh, having a pretty pleasant day, mostly motoring the wind. There wasn't much wind, so we weren't able to do a lot of sailing. So evening starts to come. It's getting dusk and dark. And we said, well, we got to remember, you know, these folks had to kind of watch out for stuff. We haven't seen anything horrible so far. But, you know, we're, so we're, we're sitting there, the four of us are kind of in the cockpit. We're kind of talking and it's getting dark and dusky and, you know, so it's getting to the point where you can't hardly see anything. And, uh, suddenly we hear this little fog horn sound. It was like, mm, mm, real faint, not anything really loud. And I go, what is that? And he said, I don't know. I, I heard something. It was kind of like a fog horn or something. There's no fog at all. And so hand me the spotlight. We bring the spotlight out and we point it straight ahead. And at that point, it's fairly dark. And the spotlight hits this um, abandoned oil rig tower that is about probably 15 feet off the water. It's a three or four foot diameter column, steel column, sticking out of the water with a remnant platform of maybe 10 to 15 foot square on top. Nothing on it, just you know a bunch of odds and ends, birds and bird crap, and you know little steel things sticking out the top, but not not an oil rig or anything. And it's unmarked, unlit. Not on the charts, and the only thing that highlighted it was that little foghorn. So, and it was literally right in front of us, probably you know no more than a hundred yards. Oh my God! uh, Just enough that the spotlight could pick it up. And we literally had we not heard that horn, probably within you know a minute or two, we would have run smack dab into that thing. And uh, so all this, we scrambled to took a hard uh, 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 turn to port went around it, looked at it as we went by it. I I regret we didn't take any pictures, although at night at nighttime, we probably wouldn't have gotten anything anyway. But I mean, it was just unbelievable. It suddenly made us realize this is a not a casual crossing or a casual trip that we're making. We've got to be really, really diligent. Shortly after that, we were one of our crew was now we're on high alert. We're starting to think about, okay, how are we going to, safely transit this because we got to keep moving. Uh, We ran about two and a half, a little over two days full time, 24-7. So we were watches, two of us on, two of us off, and uh, uh, ran watches the whole time. And, you know, we've got to keep moving because we got a lot of mileage to go. And uh, on a sailboat, it takes a long time. So shortly after that, uh, one of the crew said, you know, there's something over here to the port side off to the left. And, uh, you know, I, I, maybe it's way off in the distance. I can't tell. We were looking at going, ah, it's probably just way off there in the distance and suddenly realized, no, it's not very far. Luckily, it wasn't right in front of us, but it was also another abandoned oil rig. Uh, that was in this case, was like a full size rig that had nothing on it, nobody on it. And so we debated about what it was and then uh, we realized it was this big abandoned rig, no lights, uh, I don't remember it was if it was even on the chart, I don't think it was. And it was, you know, this huge structure, you know, 20, 30 feet off the water with a big platform. And then what was most disconcerting, it had this gantry hanging across, uh, probably about 20 feet above the water that was obviously an old walkway of some type, over to a secondary platform that had some sort of mobile home type structure. I don't know if it was an office or an old house or what have you. So it would have been something that had you sailed between those two platforms, you obviously would have easily taken your whole rig down by running across this thing. So from then on, the moral of the story is we were on high alert. So the, the, the pattern that we had to do on that particular leg of the trip, was we had to have the the helmsman with our Garmin uh, chart plotter that Kerry had had us installed before we left Kima, and that was going. Uh, and then we had a handheld Navionics uh, program that was a secondary program so we could cross reference because some of these things were on one one chart and they weren't on the other, and vice versa. And then the helmsman was focused on kind of our winding our way through all of these structures that would show up. And then to look out for the ones that were, uh, you know, just uh, uncharted and unseeable, the second crew on that watch would be sitting up at the mast with the spotlight and, and constantly scanning the horizon, using their night vision when they didn't have the uh, spotlight on to be looking for shapes or objects or something that might be in front of us. Uh, because the helmsman with the, with the um, uh, chart plotter and everything on their night vision really got, uh, uh, degraded quite a bit. So that was, you know, two days of doing that, uh, at nighttime in particular, in the daytime, we could see enough that we could avoid things, but at nighttime, we just had to be constantly vigilant going all the way through. And it's just unbelievable the amount of stuff, uh, that was quite, uh, not only terrifying, Carrie at one point called it, uh, hell, uh, because you, you, at times you have these, uh, Oil rigs, particularly as we got into the Bell Pass area, which is right off the coast of Louisiana and is one of the main industrial commercial ports. I mean, you had shrimp boats, you had oil supply boats that are flying 34 miles an hour. These hydrofoil kind of boats that are running out to the distant oil rigs. You had oil rigs close in the shore. I mean, fully functioning productional oil rigs. They've got you know they've got the uh, the pipes with the methane flare off going. So you have these these fires coming out of the top of the pipe and you'll see them, you know, off to the left, off to the right, uh, lights that are lit up like crazy on the oil rigs. And, uh, you're winding your way through all of this. And it's just, you know, boats that are, you've got big, uh, shipping uh, container boats and various other things that are, that are, uh, that are parked out there, anchored out there, uh, and uh, other kinds of boats that are just hanging out for one reason or another. And so it's just a crazy, uh, crazy passage through there. And we had to do it at night too as well, which made it all the more challenging. Uh, so that was a very interesting part of the trip. We got into uh, Grand Isle, Louisiana, uh, which is a little fishing village, a little, um, uh, a little uh, vacation, second home place uh, for folks from New Orleans out on the coast of uh, Louisiana, just, before, just west of the mouth of the Mississippi. And we were running a couple of days behind schedule. And this is where Hurricane Michael comes in. We ended up coming into uh, uh, Grand Isle, Louisiana, and staying at the little uh, marina there. Uh, very lo- lovely folks, very accommodating. We were going to spend a night there. Our, the couple that was with us had to fly back to Tampa and get back to work. Uh, Carrie, at that point, we started hearing about Hurricane Michael that was brewing up in the uh, Yucatan uh, off the, in the southern Gulf of Mexico off the Yucatan Peninsula. The so we are in, uh, we came in on a Friday afternoon. Uh, Friday night, we start hearing about the storm. Saturday, it's the topic of discussion about what the heck is going to happen with this thing. Our couple gets off, flies back to Tampa. Carrie he ends up flying back to Tampa as well because by then, Hurricane Michael was definitely a hurricane and it was coming somewhere in the northern Gulf of Mexico. Tampa was a possibility as well as uh, 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 the uh, Louisiana area. Uh, and, and I'm sorry, um, Carrie did not left yet. Uh, the couple left and Carrie was still uh, with us. So it was Carrie and I. So then Sunday morning, we got the word, okay, you got to get out of here because Michael is definitely heading north. Hurricane Michael, it's a major hurricane. At that point, it was a category one, I believe. Uh, it's going to hit through here sometime probably on Tuesday. Uh, so you guys got to get out of here because no matter what, we're going to get high water and you can't stay at the docks. So we had a captain tell us, okay, you need to take this uh, Veritaria waterway, if I remember the pronunciation correctly, is a little uh, cut of uh, waterway that they made through the bayou uh, there uh, south of New Orleans. And uh, so Carrie and I uh, cast off from the marina and we worked our way north uh, to uh, uh, about, uh, oh, it was a good uh, five, uh, six hours. uh, We ran north up the bayou. Uh, barely enough water for us to to get up there, and we came up to Lafitte, Louisiana, which was a, a little Lafitte marina, which was another little, just a little shrimp boat, uh, oil services uh, type area. Uh, they, they had a bulkhead that we could tie up against, and that was uh, basically where we were going to ride out whatever the hurricane was going to bring. So we did everything we could to tie up good, ball, buffer everything off, get the, uh, the fenders out so that we could ride out if we got the worst of it. Kerry, then at that point, we realized, uh, you know, Tampa could still be a possibility. So Carrie took off and left me with a, a boat. Uh, Carrie flew back to Tampa, took care of things back there. We had a OB-16 that needed to uh, get stored away and made sure it wouldn't be a problem. And of course, we wanted to make sure our house was going to be and everything. Everything was going to be okay. So I stayed with the boat for a couple of days. Kerry was back in Tampa. Uh, Had we been on our original schedule, we would have been in Panama City. Uh, But instead, we were in Grand Isle and now up at Lafitte in the marina. Well, of course, as you well know, uh, Michael came ashore as a category. I think it came ashore, they believe, as a category five. uh, certainly a category four, and I believe they re-rated it to a category five at Mexico Beach, which was Panama City. And uh, so it ended up being uh, the marina we would have been at uh, was destroyed by Hurricane Michael. So our our new-to-us boat would have been sitting in Panama City, and Michael would have uh, taken it away and trashed it on the shore, probably. So luck had it. We were a couple of days late behind schedule, and I didn't get anything. I stayed with the boat over in Lafitte uh, at the, in the middle of the bayou. The folks there were wonderful, took care of us. Took care of me on the boat. I, I used the time to fix more stuff on the boat and we got a little bit of breeze and a little bit of squally rain every now and then a little bit of high water but nothing nothing significant. So um, once Hurricane and Michael went by the weather was great. Um, we got uh, Carrie came back with three new crew. Uh, she couldn't stay because of she had medical commitments back in Tampa and through me and three other new crew came and uh, we brought the boat three and a half days straight back to uh, Tampa, and the Gulf at that point was uh, pretty calm. We ended up motoring most of the way, um, motor sailing most of the way, and uh, we were out there, eleven thousand five hundred feet of water underneath us, and the the top of the water was as calm as it would have been off of Davis Island on a you know calm Thursday night. So it wow. was quite an adventure. It was our It was our experience with our our new-to-us boat and breaking. Of course, we had all kinds of stuff break on the trip back. We were constantly fixing stuff and making making do with what we had, parts we had, and so forth to get things going and keep us rolling. But we got back okay. So Carrie and I had a great adventure doing that. Uh, Gave us a taste for the cruising life uh, uh, that uh, we're ultimately hopefully going to do a lot more
0: of. Oh, that's amazing. So many lessons on that trip. And oh, I'm so grateful you were running behind.
1: Oh, my gosh. Yeah, yeah. Both of us. Uh, uh, Carrie and I just looked at each other after Michael came through and she came back. Uh, And of course, at that point, we knew the kind of devastation. She had a cousin that was in Panama City. She ended up after she flew back and dropped us off. uh, She ended up uh, meeting up with her cousin who had fled to Biloxi and uh, met up with her cousin. And uh, she and her cousin went back and you know, uh, went back and started recovering. Luckily, they they had some damage, but nothing catastrophic. And um, they were in the Panama City Beach area. Luckily, just far enough to the west that uh, the bulk of the worst of Hurricane Michael was off to the east of Panama City, Mid- middle of Panama City and eastward towards Mexico Beach were where the worst of it was. And uh, so Carrie ended up spending several days up there helping her cousin. Uh, you know, just recover from the storm and, you know, do what she could to to give her a hand. But it was, we we both were counting our lucky stars that uh, our boat was safe and uh, we didn't have to deal with, uh, you know, only, only owning a boat for three weeks and then <laughs> mm. it was gone.
0: Mm, oh my, and that you guys were safe, you know, that, that you navigated all of those oil rigs and all of that craziness and everybody's okay. You didn't hit anything. You all, you know, made it through. It's like, you know, it's like running a gauntlet, and you're blindfolded, and it's the middle of the night, and you're expected to sort out how to do it. So, you know, good job there.
1: You you really, you really learn to, uh, uh, you know, sailing, sailing in general, but certainly when you do longer trips like this, uh, you know, you, you, you realize you have to be self-sufficient, and you have to be able to deal with stuff as it comes at you. Uh, as you well know, Diane, because I know from your experience, we've done, you've done a lot of this as well. Uh, If you're doing a, you know, a Mexico race, let's use that as an example, or even this delivery that we just did uh, coming back from Texas, Uh, you know, you're out there. And while there are certainly emergency resources available to you, if you, you know, the Coast Guard's available, if you, you know, if you can rouse them up and you're not too far offshore, they can come out and, and get you in the worst case scenario. But, most of the time you're just having to figure out how to make this, you know, how to fix something, how to, how to make something work, how to deal with the conditions that are thrown at you. And that's one of the beauties of the, of the sport is that it, uh, it, 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 it makes you really, uh, appreciate, uh, you know, what it's like to be self-sufficient, to be able to, uh, to deal with stuff, to, to use your wits, to use your resources, figure out how you can take something and make it work for you and or make it as a different use for what it is. So it, it's a it's a sport like many others that will uh, and an and an adventure that will uh, help you grow in many ways uh, and and you come out you come out realizing uh, you know how much you can do when you are really put to the test.
0: Oh, yes. That's very well said. That's So true. And so now you currently, you race your boat now, right? Some and, and cruise it a little. Is that what you're doing with it?
1: That's correct. We, we actually own three boats now. So we're a multiple boat owner. We have a Hobie 16 catamaran that Carrie and I occasionally will dust it off and clean it up and get it out and uh, use it. We, we had a great adventure with it off of uh, Marco Island down to Cape Romano, uh, went out into the uh, out to the ocean, for, launched it in Marco, went down to Cape Romano, and then came up the backside of the Cape Romano uh, Island chain, uh, back up to Marco Island. We had a great adventure with that several years ago, I guess it was probably 2015 or so, with our Hobie 16. Then we have a Wavelength 24, which is a little, kind of a stripped out race boat, uh, mainly for just inshore coastal racing. Uh, we, we race that on a regular basis. Uh, it's kind of a high-tech, technical boat, um, and, uh, you know, more for just pure racing. You can, we have done a little bit of uh, casual, uh, uh, cruising with it, but it's, it, it doesn't have any facilities or kitchen or anything at all. So it, it's mainly just a day sailor, uh, uh, you know, racer. And then of course we have the Morgan 45 that we just got that, that is really a big cruiser and, uh, you, you don't get anywhere fast, but you get there and very, in a lot of comfort and we're, we're doing longer races with that, and we're going to be do cruising. We're members of the cruising club at Davis Island, and we do cruises like over to St. Pete or um, over to uh, uh, Bradenton Yacht Club or, or uh, Emerson Point off of Bradenton or down to Sarasota or Venice or what have you, cruises that we'll do with that where we're just, you know, taking our time and enjoying the trip.
0: Oh, that's amazing. And so here we, you are, um, a couple with three boats. So there's more boats and there are people in your household. I love it.
1: That's right. You know, we, and unfortunately they don't all get the attention they need as a result of that. Of course, we've got a busy life otherwise too, as well. So we're, uh, you know, we're, we're always juggling finding the time to be able to, uh, to, to sail all over the way we'd like to. Uh,
0: how so I, I have one last question. I have a lot of questions. I guess I'm going to have to have you back on the show. What, how does sailing impact and your love for sailing, how does sailing and your love for sailing impact your professional life?
1: you know, I've, I've made a lot of, um, good friends and contacts, uh, professionally as a result of sailing. Um, you know, uh, Carrie and I, of course I'm very lucky. Uh, you know, Carrie uh, loves it as much as I do. And, um, you know, I'm extremely lucky to, uh, to, to be able to share it with her as well. And of course we're, we're both in the real estate field. So, um, uh, we we both uh, uh, can bring different uh, elements of um, our experiences from a professional standpoint and our in our careers as in real estate uh, into the conversations we have with uh, folks that we uh, we sail with, and so it, it works both ways. We have people that we know professionally that we introduce to sailing, and we develop a broader relationship with them as a result of having them join us sailing or uh getting them exposed to sailing or furthering their ex- sailing experiences and then it's the other way around too as well we'll meet people sailing who we can we can share our, and bring into uh, our professional life uh in, in a good example I had a combo we went, we were sailing last night they, uh, Thursday night races and uh, I had a gentleman uh, that uh, at our club that uh uh, I've been interacting with over the last few months, who's been picking my brain for advice about property that he owns in another state, and he's trying to figure out how to sell it. He, it's a family situation where he's um, uh, trying to figure out what to do with this property, and he's asking me all kinds of questions about what what he can do and what his options are and so forth, and so I have a chance to to share my experience with him and help him uh, you know, in the situation he's in and uh, plenty of people that we sail with, we have a chance to do professional business with, uh, help them on the real estate side. We have uh, two different folks uh, uh, that either Carrie, or, Carrie and I are working with right now, actually three different folks that we're currently working with on a professional level that are also sailing um, contacts or sailing friends that we have. Uh, so it's very much flows back and forth, and it's uh, it's great to be able to um, uh, to utilize both of them to uh, enhance the you know the capabilities of each side of it, it improves our sailing perf- in- improves our enjoyment of sailing because we have all these great friends and then improves our professional side because we're able to kind of leverage uh, our uh, those relationships and uh, be able to take advantage of from a, a professional standpoint of offering our services and you know being able to help folks out and. Uh, real estate related kinds of things are involved in.
0: Oh, that's wonderful. That is so, so cool. I am, I'm so loving these stories that you're sharing and I'm aware of the time and I, and I don't want to really take more of your time than necessary, but is there anything else that you would like to share that like maybe was on your mind or you thought you might want to share that we didn't get around to?
1: You know, there's the, I have to, uh, uh, tell everybody that one of the, uh, one of the greatest things is being able to have, um, you know, folks uh, that you're close to in your life that can share sailing with you. And I, I mentioned earlier, you know, my, my wife, Carrie, is, uh, it, it, it is, it brings that into my life where I can, I can have somebody that, uh, you know, I love and care for that's out there with me and we have a great time. Uh, and, and I think that's, you know, that's something that not everybody has, uh, you know, uh, the ability to have that. Uh, and it's wonderful when it happens, and sometimes it just doesn't happen, and you just you make the best of it. You make your friends, and you have your, you have your sailing friends, and you have your, your other friends that are uh, on that side. So that's something we really enjoy. And, and then the, the only other thing I, I guess I'd offer is uh, we, we, we didn't talk about the uh, Cuba race. I know you've done that, I think, Diane, in your past too as well. Or, uh, and uh, Carrie and I w- had, had the ability to, to share that with some other, on a, another friend's boat, uh, a couple of years back in uh, 2018, and uh, we were able to do the race together down to Cuba and uh, enjoy the the Cuban folks and the hospitality and what a wonderful country. So I, I'd encourage everybody to uh, to go down and uh, visit Cuba anytime that they uh, anytime that they can uh, and get an opportunity to uh, uh, to uh, take advantage of uh, beautiful places down there.
0: And that's one of the things, I'm glad you brought up the Cuba race, is, is that, you know, you sailed to Ismael Harris in Mexico and and we have the opportunity as people who can appreciate ocean racing to not only have the camaraderie and the amazing experience of the race itself and the people surrounding us, our friends and family, and we also get the ability to appreciate where we land, <laughs> whether it's Cuba or East Mujeres Harris or wherever we're sailing, or you know even the Bahamas for SORC and things like that. So I'm glad you brought that up, that that is an opportunity not to pass up if you have that opportunity to do it.
1: It, it is great. And it's, it's very much, an, uh, you know, the ability to, obviously, there's some politics as it relates to Cuba, which unfortunately get in the way uh, of the whole situation, but the ability to come in and, and meet folks that are, you know, in a different country uh, that have a different lifestyle, that have a whole different life experience, and to be able to share those and to be able to be in a position where you can, you can provide some insights both ways. Uh, and uh, it, it, it does provide just life enriching experiences and, and obviously can be in the case of Cuba, you know, they are so appreciative of folks coming down there and spending money and taking advantage of the various things they can offer, uh, whether it be hospitality from a housing standpoint or a restaurant or a vendor or buying some supplies or, you know, buying, buying things that they make down there or just visiting their country in general uh they they are so appreciative of it same thing with mexico uh same thing with the bahamas uh you know they they, they really count on it it's part of the lifeblood of their economy and it's uh you know it's a, not only a wonderful experience for us but it it allows them to continue to have a good lifestyle and and uh you know get get uh you know out of the the economy perhaps that uh, the doldrums that they might have down there without us
0: yeah, that, that's, you know, you're, you're bringing up the point, you know, a, a point that's coming to mind about the camaraderie and the connection of all of it, that sailing brings together different cultures and people and economics and safety and amazement and the Milky Way over your head, like all of it. It's all encompassing everything you can possibly think about in some way or another.
1: It really is. And I've met so many different people over the years, uh, uh, you know, you just... Uh, it, you're just always amazed at, uh, you talk with somebody and, you know, you can never set one thing about sailing, particularly at the level that, that we are at, at our club and in the, the folks that we sail with is that you can never differentiate the guy that's got $5 million in the bank and $5 in the bank. Uh, and, uh, you know, they kind of all look the same and they're, they all kind of act the same <laughs> and it's a real equalizer. That's for sure.
0: Oh, that's true. In fact, I just did an interview yesterday with Colin Arnold, another member of Davis on Jaw Club, and he said almost that exact same sentence. <laughs> uh, it's, it's great. It is true. It's, it's a truth. true,
1: yeah, it's very true. And then, of course, when you get out when you get out in the in the water, in the whole environment where you have dolphins or down in Florida Bay, where you get at nighttime, you get the phosphorescence mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and then you got the Milky Way overhead, and you got phosphorescence in the water uh particularly if you get some dolphins around you or something that are stirring it up and they're just like these glowing ghosts below your hull, mm. uh and then you look up and you've got the milky way and everything above mm. you just you know it's just it's just awesome uh is is uh awe inspiring would be i guess the best uh the best way to describe it. It definitely takes your breath away. at times.
0: Oh, definitely. It's, it's definitely inspiring. So one last question, if somebody's listening to us and they're, they're hearing your stories and all of your emotion in, about it and they want to, or they're just learning how to sail or they're thinking about sailing. And so they're kind of wanting to hear some of the stories, but they're pondering the idea of going further into the sport. What would you say to them?
1: Well, I think, I think no matter where they are, obviously, they're here in the Tampa Bay area, west coast of Florida. Uh, our Davis Island Yacht Club is a great resource. It's very opening and welcoming. Uh, we run races every Thursday night, uh, club races where we just go out for an hour and a half or so, and we, we have a setup where people can come up to the club on a Thursday night, usually about 5 to five thirty, six o'clock at the latest. And uh, uh, they come up and they 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 ask to see if they can find a boat that they can crew on. They don't have to have any experience whatsoever. They just have to be uh, you know receptive to helping out and learning and uh, or even sometimes just along for the ride. And uh, check in with the folks uh, at the clubhouse, and they'll hook you up with a skipper that uh, can use a couple of extra people or can uh, can welcome a couple of people on board. Uh, If they're not in the West coast of Florida, there's almost always a club like ours someplace around, uh, or a resource someplace. Sailing folks in general are, are pretty open and welcoming folks. So I think no matter where you are, uh, in the, certainly in the United States, and I would guess anywhere in the world, uh, you know, just look around for the places that people you see sailboats and go down and just introduce yourself and say, Hey, I don't know anything about it, but I'd like to learn more. And, uh, You'll, you'll ultimately find people willing to uh, open arms to, to to get you exposed to it and get you it doesn't have to you don't have to spend a lot of money you can you can do it very easily and sometimes it's as simple as renting a, a a little sailboat when you're on vacation at a you know hotel or something a resort and uh, you get exposed to it that way with a little bit of quickie lesson from the guy on the beach and you're off and running and uh, you know trying it out and seeing what you can do so a lot of different ways to look for it you just have to kind of be open for it and search around
0: Right. Exactly. And there's always clubs someplace. And and Larry, you've said it more than once, and I want to have all of you hear this, that he's talking about the sailing community and the connection and the camaraderie. If you walk up to just about any sailor there is and you show interest and you want to be part of it, they're going to welcome you in and they're going to point you to even more people to welcome you in. So if you're interested in sailing or you're interested in being part of this amazing sport in any way, go find the closest sailing club to you no matter where you are and go for it because you're never going to regret it. You won't look back. I promise. Well said. So Larry, thank you so much for being on the show and taking your time today to share all these great stories and you've churned up a bunch of cool memories in me too. So thank you so much
1: and my pleasure and, and it was it was fun kind of uh, reminiscing in my brain about all the, the different things that I did. The older you get, the more sometimes things get hazy and uh, uh, but it, it's fun to think about them
0: again. Well that's the point of the sailing Legends podcast. and everybody, the point is to maintain and preserve the legacy. So as you've heard Larry speak, if he's inspired you in any way to sail, go follow that inspiration. And remember that life is about living. So may you have fair winds and following seas. And until the next episode of the Sailing Legends podcast, be well.